Hello and good afternoon. Welcome. And welcome, welcome to the Oxford Martin School. Welcome to the fourth in our series on health in the 21st century, uh, the health and environmental implications of our food choices. We have uh, three speakers uh, today. We're going to hear from all three um, and take questions at the end. So first will be Professor Susan Jebb, who is our Professor of Diet and Population Health here. She is interested in how scientific evidence on diet is translated into policy and practice by government, industry, the public health community, and the media. She was the science advisor for the Foresight Obesity Report. She is chair of the Department of Health's Public Health Responsibility Deal Food Network, developing voluntary agreements with industry to improve the food environment. She is a member of the Public Health England Obesity Program Board, and in 2008, she was awarded an OBE for services to public health. That's just a small selection from her biography. Um, we will then hear from Dr. Tara Garnett, who is a principal investigator at the Oxford Martin School's program on the future of food. Her work focuses on the contribution that the food system makes to greenhouse gas emissions and the scope for emissions reduction. She's particularly interested in the relationship between emissions reduction objectives and other social and ethical concerns, particularly human health, livelihoods, and animal welfare. She initiated and now runs the Food Climate Research Network, which is based at the Environmental Change Institute here at Oxford. And then lastly, we'll hear from Professor Mike Rayner, who is Professor of Population Health here. He is also a PI at the Oxford Martin Programme on the Future of Food, and he is Director of the British Heart Foundation Centre on Population Approaches for NCD Prevention. His particular research is in food labelling, food marketing, food taxes, and the relationship between a healthy diet and a sustainable diet. And he is a chair of SUSTAIN, the Alliance for Better Food and Farming in the UK, a trustee of the UK Health Forum, and a member of the Scientific Advisory Panel of the International Obesity Task Force. So we'll hear from each of those for about a quarter of an hour each, and then they will all um, join us here at the, at the front, and we will have plenty of time for a good debate afterwards. So to kick off, Professor Susan Jebb. Thank you, Julian, and uh, a great pleasure to, to be here. We've been asked to um, talk to the topic of, uh, of well-fed. Now, I'm not quite sure whether I'd say we were well-fed, but what I would certainly say is that we are overfed. Um, certainly here in the UK, and we're not particularly unusual amongst, uh, certainly amongst developed countries, is that uh, around about a quarter of adults today are clinically obese. And perhaps even more worryingly, 16% of our young people, and that's counting everybody from, from 2 to 15, are obese as well. And it won't come as any surprise to you that that burden of obesity puts not only great personal costs on individuals and their families, but it's a direct cost both to the NHS and, even bigger, to the wider economy through lost productivity, time off work, and, and so forth. So obesity is a matter for individuals, a matter for communities, and indeed for nations. We hear a lot about um, obesity, uh, but in the end, you know, it's not really obesity per se that matters. What matters is the fact that obesity is such a strong risk factor for ill health. It's a bit like hypertension in that sense. It's not hypertension that kills you, but it's hypertension leads on to other diseases. And so the same is true of obesity. 
So this is a graph from colleagues here in Oxford, the Prospective Studies Collaboration, well over a million people, and shows you very, well, I was about to say very clearly, it's actually a terrible slide, so not that clearly, but it shows you that there's a relationship between increasing BMI and increasing mortality. And the uh, dotted line is set at a BMI of 25. That's the level we describe as being overweight. You have to get to a BMI of 30 before we uh, describe it as, as clinically obese, which is, yeah, uh, well, a, a little bit further along. So there is no doubt that obesity shortens lives and is associated with premature mortality. But there's more to life than death. And what concerns me actually rather more is the ill health, the morbidity that accompanies um, uh, obesity. So here, well, actually, this is, this is mortality again. This is just looking at the relationship between BMI and the increase in strokes, but particularly the increase in ischemic heart disease. But here is the relationship with diabetes, which is particularly striking. So what you see is that even at a BMI of only 25, just overweight, actually a BMI which is lower than the average adult BMI in the UK, we can see that there's somewhere around a seven-fold increased risk of developing diabetes. By the time you're clinically obese at a BMI of 30, you're talking about a 30-fold increased risk, and it rises dramatically after that. What's even more worrying, I think, is when we express this data in terms of the lifetime risk of developing diabetes based on your age and BMI. What this shows clearly is that at every age, even in older adults, the risk of diabetes increases with increasing BMI, and that risk is particularly marked for young people. So if you are 18 and you are clinically obese, BMI of 30, you have somewhere over a half, a, a one in two chance of developing diabetes in your lifetime. And that, I think, is something that which should fill us all with really grave concern. Diabetes is a, a distressing condition for individuals, but it puts a huge burden on health services. Diabetes is the leading cause of renal failure, leading cause of blindness, leading cause of limb amputations in this country. It puts an enormous burden on our health systems. So I'm not going to talk in great detail about the etiology of obesity, but let me just say this. Most people are less active than they should be for good health. I'm not here to talk about physical activity particularly today, but it's an important component. But that aside, most people eat more than they need. And that is fundamentally what's driving the uh, uh, increase in the prevalence of obesity. But it is more than just calories. When we're thinking about the concept of well-fed, we have to look beyond just calories and recognize that people are also choosing the wrong kinds of calories, which in themselves bring independent health risks. Most people eat too much saturated fat, too much salt, too much sugar, too little fiber, and too little fruit and vegetables. And indeed, if we put all of this together, as was shown in the Public Health England document that was published just a couple of weeks ago, what you can see is that dietary risks are right up there at the top of the list when one looks at the contribution of these risk factors um, to disability-adjusted life years um, in the UK. 
I could spend another whole lecture going through the evidence base for what constitutes a healthy diet, but in the interests of time, I think you're just going to have to accept that the World Health Organization has looked at this in some detail, and they've come up as part of their global strategy on diet, they've come up with a set of broad recommendations of the kinds of things we need to do. Eat less fat, sugar, salt, more fruit and vegetables. The key question I want to think about now is what difference would this make? What if we were to shift to a healthier diet? I think often we spend a lot of time talking about the problem and not enough time talking about what might be the solution. And I just want to quickly show you data from a series of studies which I think illustrate very powerfully the benefits that can be achieved if we were to change our diet. So here's data from one of my own studies, which shows in 500-odd people the benefits of reducing saturated fat. There's a lot in the media about whether saturated fat is a risk. I firmly believe it is. Reducing saturated fat in the diet, whether you replace that with other types of fat, and that's shown in the HM, the high monounsaturated diets, or if you actually just reduce total fat, that those the low-fat LF diets, in each case, you see a reduction in LDL cholesterol, the so-called bad cholesterol. Reducing saturated fat, whatever you replace it with, is associated with improvements in cholesterol. What you see here, the LGI, these, this was also a, a study which involved manipulating the glycemic index. And what you can see is the difference between high and low glycemic index foods. And you'll see, if you look at the statistics, that there's an additional benefit in terms of, saturated, of LDL reduction if you choose low glycemic index carbohydrates. So reducing saturated fat, changing the nature of the carbohydrates in the diet, both contribute to reductions in LDL cholesterol. Here's the DASH trial, which shows the benefits twofold. Firstly, of reducing salt. You can see the effect on blood pressure of a high, medium, and low-salt diet. But additionally, it shows the benefit of the so-called DASH diet. This was a diet that was particularly rich in fruit and vegetables and, with, uh, 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 and rich in low-fat um, dairy products, high in calcium, magnesium, and other important minerals. If we change the overall diet, we get significant reductions in blood pressure. You can see systolic blood pressure goes down from the 133 or so in the high-salt control diet down to about 125 in the low-salt uh, DASH diet. Now, those of you who want to pick holes in this will say, but these are just intermediate biomarkers. These are risk factors. What about hard outcomes? So here are three, I think, uh, slides which tell you about hard outcomes. This is the Finnish Diabetes Prevention Program. Recruited people at high risk of diabetes with impaired glucose tolerance and put them into a complex multi-component intervention which involved weight loss, reducing fat, increasing fruit and vegetables and so forth. This is the incidence of diabetes over the successive eight years. What you can see is that it was more than halved. Comprehensive dietary change more than halved the risk of developing diabetes. Here's another one. This one's actually done with uh, long-chain um, N3 uh, 
effectively fish oil supplements, but I guess is a proxy for the oily fish story. But here, these are people who were given um, relatively high-dose long-chain N3 supplements, and you can see substantial reductions in mortality, total mortality, cardiovascular mortality, um, both uh, sudden death and um, ischemic heart disease. And one final one, which is the Mediterranean diet. This is a secondary prevention trial. This was people who had already had a heart attack, and we were trying to prevent them having um, a further incident. And this was the fairly classical Mediterranean diet, changing the types of fats towards unsaturated fat, decreasing red meat, increasing oily fish, increasing fruit and vegetables. And again, what you see is a substantial um, improvements in survival in those who adopt uh, the Mediterranean diet. It's a very quick run-through, but I hope it's enough data to persuade you that there are very, very tangible health benefits to be had by changing dietary habits. And indeed, Mike Rayner and his colleagues have done some nice modelling which have looked in the UK what would achieving some of the dietary targets actually mean, and what they estimate is that we could save 70,000 premature deaths um, each year in Britain. But the problem is that dietary change is slow. You know, many of us have been in this game for quite some time now, and to be honest, the fundamentals of dietary advice have not changed a lot, despite what you might read in the media. We still think people should eat less saturated fat, eat less sugar, eat less salt, eat more fruit and vegetables. We've been arguing for this for some time. But what you'll see from this data, which are two surveys done around about 10 years apart, is that change, whilst it's been in the right direction, is extremely slow. And we are still a long way away from our health targets. We have to develop new ways to uh, encourage, enable, support, facilitate people to make changes in their diet. And I would argue this is where the real challenge currently lies. Of course, it's not just when we're thinking about food, it's not just about health. And again, you know, uh, Mike uh, contributed heavily to this document from the Sustainable Development Commission a few years ago, which tried to reconcile the priorities and the dietary recommendations around public health, environmental sustainability, and also thinking about the impact on the economy. It's important to remember that the food industry is the UK's single biggest manufacturing industry. If we, uh, if we want a successful economy, we also need a successful food industry. And what we really need to grapple with, and I think in a way at the heart of today's um, uh, session, is how do we marry up these complex goals? Because as this diagram shows, is sometimes they're all well aligned. If you take something like uh, reducing uh, consumption of, of meat, for example, in general, uh, they're, 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 there's some agreement, but in other areas, uh, it's, they certainly don't, don't go along together. Um, the example I, I started to use recently is around, is around sugar. So in nutritional terms, you'll find very few nutritionists sort of arguing that we should be eating uh, sugar because it's a significant risk factor for obesity and indeed ill health. But actually, it has a relatively low environmental impact. So uh, it may be that, that sugar is the most environmentally friendly way to get fat. So at the end of the day, food is a complex system. And I think the question that we really need to think hard about um, 
from a health perspective is how can we optimise health within the constraints of a sustainable food supply. That doesn't mean just doing what's right for health, it means doing what's right for the planet as well. And I hope that as this afternoon goes on, we might get into a bit more of the discussion about why that is so very, very challenging. And I think that's where the complexity in terms of what should we do comes in. I think for health, there's a relatively clear prescription now. It's how do we marry that up with other goals? And then an even bigger question is how do we go about producing that dietary change? Thank you. Great. Uh, thank you very much, Susan. I'm going to segue on a bit. Um, so I'm going to talk about food and the environment, but before doing that, and I won't exclusively do that because I don't think it's possible to talk about food and the environment before talking about all the other things that link us to food. Um, food is about everything, really. Uh, that's why I find it really interesting. Susan's talked about nutrition, that aspect of food, but there are all sorts of other things. So when we're talk, uh, talking about the environment, we're talking about climate change, land degradation, water use and so forth. We're talking about other aspects that impact upon our well-being as people. So that is nutritional health, but it's also other health impacts such as zoonotic diseases, it's uh, jobs and income, it's issues of power and control and equity. And of course, there's the bit at the bottom that we tend to forget about when we're discussing nutrition and the environment, which is all the other dimensions of food. Food is eaten for pleasure. Food that is, um, uh, there's a huge amount of ingenuity that goes into the production of a, a processed pizza or a Heston Blumenthal meal. Um, it's linked up with our religious beliefs. Um, we have strong ideas about animal ethics and welfare. So food is about everything. And, um, and I'm going to focus on, on the environmental dimensions, but show that we cannot be talking about solutions without talking about that everything else. So our food system links to a range of concerns from climate change, deforestation, land degradation, and a range of water pressure. So I'm going to focus mainly on climate change. So um, there's been a number of studies over, over recent years, and generally speaking, they find that the food system as a whole, from production through to consumption, accounts for about 20 to 30% of global greenhouse gas emissions. Now, there's quite a wide range in that, and that's because there's going to be huge variation uh, across countries and huge difficulties in actually accurately quantifying. About two-thirds of those emissions occur at the farming stage. Um, Part of that is direct on-farm impacts, and part of that is land use change, and I'll talk about both of those things in a minute. And then beyond the farm gate, you get all the emissions that are associated with processing, manufacturing, transport and distribution, retailing, catering, you taking your food home, putting it in the fridge, heating it up, washing it up, throwing it away, that sort of thing. So. Focusing on farming, what, why are those impacts so significant? And, and I think the thing to remember is that when we talk about climate change and the problems we face, most of the attention is on CO2 emissions. 
because of our use of fossil fuels, and rightly so. But when it comes to agricultural production, there are other gases to worry about as well. We've got methane, so carbon dioxide present in the atmosphere, but a relatively weak, um, has a relatively weak global warming potential. And the main causes from agriculture are fossil fuel use and land use change. But when it comes to um, methane and nitrous oxide, they are also very significant. So methane comes from burping cows, enteric fermentation, from dung and urine, and rice paddies. Um, and again, meth methane is present in the atmosphere in smaller con concentrations, but it's about 25 times more potent. So if, if carbon dioxide is beer, methane's wine. And then nitrous oxide, again, that's very much livestock related and uh, nitrogen fertilizer and dung related. And that, that is even more potent. It's, it's the vodka of the, of the climate change world. So you've got about half of the emissions come from methane and nitrous oxide and a little bit of fossil fuel use. And then you've got this great big 50% that comes from land use change. And livestock contribute to the bulk of those. So land use change, what is land use change? Well, this is land use change. So that, that's rainforest, and that is probably soy, where once there was rainforest, and that soy is probably destined to feed our pigs and our poultry and our dairy cows. Um, and, of course, the, the ploughing up of pasture land and the cutting down of trees gives rise to the release of carbon dioxide. So there are also other issues. There's been masses and masses of focus on food and greenhouse gas emissions, but water, people are starting to say, well, actually, water is the one we really, really should be worried about because food is thirsty. So 70% of irrigation water used worldwide goes for the agricultural sector. And, um, and that's, that's mainly, so that's irrigation. So although we drink a small amount of water each day, it's the embedded water, the water involved in irrigating the food or in producing the feed crops that go to feed our livestock that is the real concern. And by 2050, it's been estimated that about half of the world's population will be living in water-stressed regions. And you can see from that slide that it's the poor people, as usual, who are going to suffer. And then we've got other issues as well. We've got, so if, if agriculture is the main driver of deforestation, it is also a main cause of biodiversity loss worldwide. And that, that slide simply shows the increase in uh, the number of threatened species um, just over the course of 11 years. So, so the question then arises, okay, so what can you do? Well, you can produce differently. You can change how food is produced, reared, transported, and distributed, so that means optimizing your uh, agricultural inputs relative to your outputs, not clearing more land. Therefore, we need to produce the food that we do on existing land and not expand. Even though our population is growing and we need to decarbonize post-harvest. Post so that's one thing we can do and we should be doing. And the second thing we need to be doing is improving governance. So that is, among other things, halts on deforestation, addressing equity issues because, you know, it's one of these tired, well-known, but nevertheless not implemented mantras that, that hunger is a problem of inadequate access to food rather than the insufficiency of food on worldwide. So we need to improve governance to ensure that poor people actually can access and afford food. And we need to address waste as well, because 
And again, these are really, really rough estimates, but people say 30 to 50% of food worldwide is wasted. And, and that's an issue because wasted food represents a waste of all the emissions and all the land use associated with the production and distribution of that product. And then, so finally, we need to consume differently. And that's what I'm going to focus on, shifting diets away from resource-intensive foods and considering the implications for health. So they all need to be done, but not one of them on their own is going to do the job. So this slide quickly illustrates that. So the red line at the top is our cap, our global cap on everything from transport, the built environment, eating food, buying shoes, everything. And you can see that under business as usual, agriculture is going to gobble up most of that by 2050 um, under current yield projections and so forth. If you reduce waste, you're going to get a few, some cuts. If you introduce um, reductions in waste and shift diets, and that is mainly cutting consumption of animal products, and I'll talk about that, you get further cuts. If you address yields, so you intensify yields in order to avoid land use change and reduce nitrogen, uh, excessive nitrogen fertilizer emissions, you get cuts. Then if you, if you add waste to that as well, waste reduction. But really, if you do everything, that's where you're going to get some savings. So, so really, the purpose of this slide is to show that it's not an either-or. We don't have the luxury of choice. We have to do everything. If we're going to be able to do anything else with our lives other than eat and survive. So what is consuming differently? Just quickly to say, I'm just going to knock this one on the head. Is local food the answer? There may be lots of reasons why you might want to eat locally, but from a greenhouse gas emissions perspective, you have to question, um, if it's further worse, well, it depends on the mode of transport. If we're talking about aeroplanes, then yes, but shipping has a lower carbon footprint than road, even though something might travel longer. If you're running around in a local food system, but you've got a really clapped out old van and it's half empty, and you're not backhauling, that's not necessarily very good as compared with a really big nasty juggernaut that is very, very efficiently managed and, um, and, and is going to go back with, with a load as well. Um, and, and you've also most significantly got to consider the production method. So if you're growing something in a heated, lighted greenhouse here in the UK in the middle of winter, the chances are you're going to be better off uh, shipping that over from Spain, which benefits from free sunlight. Of course, water is a completely different story. So you've got to balance greenhouse gas emissions against other uh, areas of environmental concern. But the point here is that what we eat often matters more than where it comes from. And livestock, Susan's just touched upon livestock, they account for about 14.5% global greenhouse gas emissions. They use 70% of our farmland. They're a major driver of deforestation and they pollute water resources, and they eat grains. And that's a difficult issue, but arguably they eat grains that we could be consuming directly. Of course, the protein content is not going to be equivalent, and you could argue that that grain wouldn't be produced if it wasn't going to be produced for livestock. It's a complicated issue, but arguably that's a waste of prime arable land, which we don't have in abundance. Of course, there's lots of goods. For a start, it gives livelihoods to nearly a billion people worldwide. It's core to our identity and our culture. It's a form of free lunch in some cases, you know, sticking a sheep on the Welsh uplands. You're really getting something from nothing, so you can't do much else with that land. And, of course, there are non-food goods as well, from, you know, leather through to collagen used in various arguably unnecessary beauty products. So, so this is... This is 
what we eat. It's not what Susan thinks we ought to be eating, but it is what we eat in the UK. And this is, looks at the greenhouse gas emissions associated with the typical British diet. And you can see that about 70% of those impacts relate to the animal content of our diet. Um, another study that was, um, it's, I mean, it's fairly crude, but what it shows is that the less meat you're eating, the less your impact is going to be and work by Pete Scarborough and, and his colleagues at Oxford has pretty much made the same point uh, more recently. Um, and, of course, things get harder because, okay, so that was me. I was born in 1969, and the population of the world when I was born has now doubled. And, um, and of course, these more people are eating more resource-intensive foods. So this compares India then and now, Thailand, China. And you can see, so that was a study by the ODI, Overseas Development Institute, and you can see the red component of that. So we're not eating just more calories, but more of the resource-intensive meat products. Um, but we mustn't forget that inequality still exists. So this is, this is the US, uh, and this is Chad, and I find this the most extraordinary set of slides. This was a man who went around the world photographing a typical weekly meal across the, across the world. Of course, to add nuance to that, uh, fat people are, you know, most of the world's fat people are now in, in developing countries simply because there are more people and their diets are transitioning very rapidly. So it's also a very mixed picture. Um, so what should we do? Can we identify diets that are more sustainable and consistent with good health? And I'm using my wording really, really carefully here. So I can say that lower greenhouse gas diets that are consistent with good nutritional health um, are diverse for a start. That's very important for nutrition. A balance achieved between energy intake and energy needs because if you're eating more than you need, Arguably, that's a waste of embedded ish, uh, emissions. More plants, usually of the cabbage, swedes, and carrots variety, and not your air-freighted mange too and blueberries, so not the foods that we tend to like. All the trends are going towards the salady berry type things, the ratatouille vegetables, which actually have quite a high carbon footprint because they're grown in a greenhouse or because they're, they're air-freighted from overseas. So we need to eat more cabbage. Less, less meat. And also, dairy's a tricky one because, as Susan's pointed out, it's good for health on the whole, um, but it's also, it comes from a cow, it's going to have a high carbon footprint. So, in moderation and looking at diversifying sources of, of calcium and other of the good things that you get in, in milk. Seeds and nuts, certified fisheries, again, how you actually, there's lots of discussions about fish and how you actually define a sustainable fish, which I'm not going to go into but generally speaking, less, and probably mussels. Mussels are good. And then less junk, because that's a waste of embedded emissions because we don't need it, Let's, you know, leaving aside pleasure and tap water. So this is a very narrow definition, because sustainability is multidimensional. It's not just about greenhouse gas emissions. And health is multidimensional. Because apart from anything else, if you're happier, you may also be healthier. So that's non-scientific, but I'm sure it's true. But... Um, so, uh, the, the relationship between environment and health, there are definitely potential synergies, but we have to work at them because you can, as Susan's pointed out, you can have an unhealthy low greenhouse gas diet if you eat lots of donuts, or a healthy but high greenhouse gas diet if you eat lots of, um, I don't know, salmon and um, 
and, and Mange too. So, so we, you have to work at it. And I think we also, and this comes back to my, my earlier point that it's not just about climate change and it's not just about health or nutrition. We eat because we like food, because it means so many things to us. And there are different definitions of good when it comes to, or, or even sustainable. Um, and because eating is really complicated and we eat for lots of different reasons and we give food and we accept food for lots of different reasons. And, and, and I'm sure you can all add to that, that, that list. And of course, those are our personal hang-ups and reasons and they're framed by what's normal in our society, what's marketed to us, what's available, what we can afford. And of course, that itself is the bigger frame for that is economy and trade and biology and education and governance and the food industry. So it's, it's very narrow just to talk about health on the one hand and environmental sustainability on the other. And I think it, what, it, what, what I'm really trying to say here is that unless we start talking about what we want as a society for our food system, what our values are, what we feel is fair, what makes us happy, and what we actually think success looks like, we can do any number of studies that tell us what an optimal diet looks like, and we're going to get absolutely nowhere. I personally think that we all need to, that equity is paramount, but um, we're in a very privileged room in the middle of a very privileged city, so we can talk about these things, but how you actually make it happen in practice is much, much harder. Thank you very much. Um, I don't think the previous speakers have covered anything I'm going to say, so that's fine, <laughs> being lost. Well, thank you very much for inviting me um, to speak to you today. In my talk, I'm going to focus on uh, um, the health implications of our food choices, because that's where I'm, I know more about, rather than the environmental implications. And in fact, actually look at just one health implication, obesity. But I hope that what I'm going to say will be relevant to a consideration of all health um, and environmental implications. So here is the outline of my talk. I'm going to first, I'm going to talk about some problems. Of course, not all implications of food choices are problematic, but today I'm going to talk about problematic impl impl implications of food choices. Secondly, I want to talk about some uh, explanations for one of those problems, um, obesity, and thirdly, um, some solutions to that problem. Incidentally, by choice, I don't, as in the title of this, um, this seminar, I don't just mean our individual food choices, but the choices we make as groups, families, um, organizations, communities, societies, and so forth. Um, very few people, for example, choose to be obese, but somehow many of us have ended up that way. So, firstly, problems. What are the problems, uh, problematic implications of our food choices? I think they can be broadly categorized, as we've heard earlier, into three groups, health, environmental, and socioeconomic, or I think Tara calls them livelihood um, uh, problems. Uh, 
First, obviously, our food choices are, well, maybe, perhaps, obviously, are going to affect our own health, but our food choices also affect the health of others. Um, this is most obvious in the case of families, where parents will make food choices for their, their kids. But also, indirectly, our food choices will also affect the health of people beyond our families. For example, if we personally, um, or as a society, choose to eat fish at the rate um, that we're doing so, I eat faster than fish can reproduce themselves, then, and then there will be progressively less fish for other people and other societies to eat, so potentially affecting their health. But there are myriad ways in which our food choices affect the health of others besides ourselves. Obviously, our food choices um, have only a small effect on our own in environment, but as we've heard already, uh, they do have a large and ever-increasing effect on the environment as a whole. Our food choices um, affect our livelihoods through our expenditure on food and thereby our expenditure on other things we need or desire uh, besides foods. And our food choices may also affect our income, depending on how much food we personally cook or grow, etc. But they also affect the income of others, in particular those whose jobs uh, it is to produce and sell us our foods, and also other people's expenditure through market mechanisms. So food choices, in addition to their effects on health and the environment, as we've heard earlier, also have a socio-economic impact or an impact on livelihoods. So um, food-related health, food health problems, I think, can broadly be divided into under, those of undernutrition and overnutrition. Um, we've heard mostly about overnutrition today, and I'm going to talk a bit more about that. Um, environmental um, problems have been dealt with by Tara. I think they can be divided into uh, those related to pollution, as in the case of greenhouse gases, and also depletion of resources, such as the running out of things like land and fish and so forth. And finally, socioeconomic um, problems, I think, can be divided into those of wages and prices. So turning to some health-related, oh, oh, of course there are other problems as well, and you can probably think of others which aren't so neatly uh, categorized in this scheme, such, such as animal welfare. But turning to some uh, food and health problems, um, there is a sort of wealth of facts which, with which to elaborate this problem. And here are some basic facts about the global situation. We now know that about 805 million people on this planet were chronically undernourished in 2012-2014. That number has fallen by um, 209 million since 1990-1992. Um, the problem is getting a little bit less, but it's still there. In 2008, more than 1.4 billion adults were overweight. Of these, 500 million were obese. And uh, overweight and obesity has approximately doubled in the last 10 years. Um, as can be seen, for example, in this slide, overweight and obesity has approximately doubled over the last 10 years, as I just said. And this slide with data from the OECD shows that this increase in the prevalence of obesity has occurred at different rates in different countries. If you extrapolate all the lines backwards, they come, they cross the x-axis uh, quite close together sometime in the mid-20th to late-20th century, suggesting that obesity is a recent phenomenon, at least on a mass scale. So this 
phenomena of obesity can also be shown in um, pictures as well as statistics, as shown here. Uh, these are some adverts for the latest in toilet seats and um, coffins. Now to explanations for this problem of obesity, or phenomenon of obesity. So here is a, um, one attempt at an explanation based on system theories, which um, many of you may have seen before. It comes from the Foresight Report, which Susan was uh, closely involved in, and some of us were also involved in. I've criticized this um, map of the causes of obesity on other occasions, and merely in my view, serves to suggest that obesity is complicated. Well, yes, life is complicated, and it doesn't seem to have much utility beyond that. My main criticism of it is, is it, that it lacks agents beyond the disaggregated body at the center of the diagram. There are no agents that make any choices, as in the title of this seminar today. For example, there is a box, um, marked um, market price of food offerings, as if this is a given, and that humans have no choice over what we pay or charge for foods. It's in the red circle over there. This map divides up the causes of obesity roughly by um, discipline. So, for example, in the middle you have physiological causes of obesity, and the top you have um, uh, psychological causes of obesity. And a more useful way of explaining obesity is, I think, um, is to use a framework um, provided uh, that allows for the fact that there is on the one hand, that we on the one hand, as human beings, are subjects as well as objects, agents, who from a position of self-awareness are both individually and collectively as well um, act as well as being acted upon, but also takes account of the fact that not all problems are are problems for the individual, are problems for the group, the family, the organization, the community, the society. Uh, this framework is provided by a thinker called um, Ken Wilber in his book called A Theory of Everything. And he divides the theories four, into four types, theories of, into four types. Individual objective, going round to uh, group objective, group subjective, and individual subjective. And perhaps an easier way of understanding this classification of theories is to show how different disciplines can be classified by this framework. So physiology is the archetypical uh, individual objective type of theory, aiming objectively to study individual bodies. And modern-day psychology is also an individual objective type of theory, though in the past it was more subjective. Sociology is a discipline that seeks to explain um, largely objectively, the characteristics of groups such as societies, and so can be described as a group objective theory. In the two right-hand boxes, we, have, uh, we find disciplines that primarily rely on objective knowledge and on empirical data, preferably from experiments. In the two left-hand boxes, we have disciplines that rely primarily on subjective understanding and on stories rather than um, numbers. Um, theology... Uh, I should declare an interest here, I'm an Anglican priest in my spare time. Um, but, but by theology, I would include atheistic um, theologies, as, as perhaps if that isn't a contradiction in terms, as well as religious theologies. It, uh, theology is the archetypical um, subjective individual, individual subjective type of theory. But there are also shared theories which can be described as group subjective, such as history. Some may object to my classifications of these disciplines, and of course um, they can be changed. So psychology, as I said in the past, was more subjective. 
Um, anthropology also talks about groups, and economics, I'm not totally sure where it fits at all, really. Okay, so how does this all rate to the problem of obesity? Well, firstly, different types of theories to explain the problem actually seek to address different questions. That's so individual objective theories ask, why is he, she, it fat? Um, group objective theories ask, why are they as a group fat? Um, group subjective theories ask, why are we as a group fat? And um, individual subjective theories ask, why am I fat? Uh, so, to underline this point, um, I've already shown you this graph which talks about uh, societies in different countries. As, we, as I said, increase in, the increase in prevalence of obesity has been, different, has been at different rates in different countries. For example, the rate of increase in France has been slower than the rate in Australia. And the explanation for this, I think, lies at least in part in the different food cultures in the two countries. For instance, France, in France, families still eat together, whereas in Australia, they do not. And turning to the question of why am I fat, here is a picture of me looking fat. It's quite difficult to find one on the web, <laughs> I must say. This um, is a picture from a, a meeting of a group called Informus, and Informus stands for the International Network for Food and Obesity, Non-Communicable Disease Research Monitoring and Action Network. And you can find me at the top left-hand corner of this group. I want to know um, why some obesity researchers are fat, like me, and some are not, like Boyd Swinburne, who you find in the center of this, um, whoops, this diagram. A picture, I mean. I have no complete answer for this question uh, that I can share with you. I don't really know you well enough, I don't think, to explain why I find the eating of food problematic, but I'm sure there will be others in this audience who find eating equally or more problematic. And I'm not sure which is more important uh, a question. Is it more important to ask why, do they, why is obesity higher in France than in, uh, lower in France than in Australia, or why um, I am fatter than Boyd Swinburne? Anyway. There are many possible explanations for the obesity, and here's some um, by uh, the Wilbur theory types. So, if energy increase exceeds energy expenditure, the mouse gets fat. If he or she increases her consumption of energy-dense food, he, he or she will get fat. If he or she is confronted by a range of different foods, he or she will eat more foods and get fat. First is a physiological theory um, explanation, the second two are psychological explanations. Moving on to group, um, group explanations, explanations for fat, fatness in groups. Where there is an increased availability of different energy-dense foods, they will get fat. Where increasing economic wealth leads to increasing availability of different energy-dense foods, they will get fat. In postmodernity, we are defined by what we consume, so we consume more and more and get fat. We are adapted by natural selection to eat more in times of plenty, so in times of plenty, we will get fat. I am by nature greedy, and despite my best intentions, I get fat. Um, the reference for that is um, St. Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 7, verses, verse 15. It's a rough translation of that. And I could supply you with references for the, for the other explanations of obesity, if you like. Uh, you can have my, have my reference to data. So, 
that's the explanations for obesity. Uh, where does this all lead to us? Importantly, I think, we're not just interested in problems and explanations, we're interested in solutions. So I've listed these explanations down the, uh, explanations for obesity down the side. And of course, they generate different types of solutions. So if we think that um, obesity is a matter of physiological imbalance between energy expenditure and energy intake, then our solutions will be to develop drugs to solve that problem. If we think uh, we can exploit our knowledge of the psychology of food selection, for example, our tendency to eat more when confronted with a greater variety of foods as, as at a buffet, then we can use nudge, which I'm hoping you've all heard of, um, to uh, tip people over the, over, over the bounce um, by, for example, providing them with set meals in cafeterias rather than um, uh, set meals in canteens rather than the cafeteria type style of food delivery. If we think that increasing, when, when you get increasing economic wealth, that leads to an increasing availability. Ah, wrong one, sorry. Yeah. When, when, if you think that, in, that price is an important um, determinant of food, for example, when increasing economic wealth, that leads to increasing availability of different energy-dense foods at different uh, lower prices, then you, we, then you can control that by introducing things like taxes on sugary drinks. And finally, if you think that I, I'm by nature by greedy, then we come to this issue of repentance, which could be another subject of a, a talk. So to summarize, um, of course, none of these things are mutually exclusive. They all follow from the explanations, and none, no one of them is going to be more important than any other. In conclusion, why focus so much on obesity in this presentation? Well, partly I've used this presentation of some of the explanations for and solutions for obesity as illustrative of how other implications of our food choices might be investigated and addressed. And to repeat, what I said earlier, by choices, I don't mean just choices that affect ourselves. Um, choices we, I, we also have to consider the choices that affect others. And also, I'm not just thinking about choices as we make as an individual, but as a society. But more importantly, I focus on obesity because I think it is symptomatic of a wider malaise in ourselves, in our families, and in our societies. And that malaise, which can be broadly characterized as overconsumption, manifests itself in other health and environmental problems. And in particular, overconsumption, not just of food, is the root cause, I think, of global warming. And it is perhaps the case that obesity is the lesser of these two problems. We may well, I think, survive the so-called obesity epidemic, but we are not, I don't think, going to survive global warming. So on that rather gloomy note, thank you. Okay, well, thank you very much for three very thought-provoking and very different presentations. Um, we're going to have um, about 35 minutes now for questions um, and discussion. Could I just tell people, rather than remind people, that this uh, is being filmed and live webcast. So if you don't want to be filmed and live webcast, please don't ask a question. So um, right, if I could have a show of hands and we have some roving mics to, to take any questions. Here's a question here. All right, 
Uh, thank you very much for the very extraordinary speech. And so uh, I'm from China, and I want I have a question for Susan. Right. So I noticed that you mentioned that we have uh, in the UK we have like and pay endeavor to uh, tackle this problem like for ten years or over ten years, but the progress is very very slow. So I wonder what do you think the problem is, and uh, have we considered any solutions? Um, I know I would sound very Chinese because I'm from China. So like the economic, like the um, governmental intervention into the food market, for example, because I also noticed that the relative price of meat to vegetable is much, much more lower here than in China. So I think people just encourage it to buy meat instead of vegetable or fruit. So I, I want to like have like the government of UK consider this kind of like economic solutions like so thank you very much so I think for many, many years now that it's been widely recognised that there's a problem and that we need to change diets. But there's been a huge amount of talk of a whole variety of different options. But if you look at what's actually happened, it, it's been heavily based on health promotion. It's been heavily based on an idea that if we educate people more, if they understand more about a healthy diet, then they'll just spontaneously go and follow that advice. And I think that in more recent times, people have, not, not, not entirely, but a growing body of people have recognised that knowledge is helpful, but it is by no means sufficient. Just understanding about a healthy diet doesn't, doesn't mean you're going to do it. So I think there are other initiatives which are coming into place, things like food labelling, for example, where the UK really is leading the world in trying to have clearer labelling so that people can identify healthier choices. Not perfect, but it's an effort. And there's a whole raft of other interventions which are discussed, and some of them are partially enacted. Um, so you've got a whole load of things like the Healthy Start scheme, which is a welfare food scheme for, for uh, pregnant women and young children. But there are a great many other initiatives which, for complex reasons, um, policymakers have chosen not to deploy. So the obvious one at the present time would be um, taxation on specific foods which we, where we want to discourage consumption, particularly uh, sugar-sweetened beverages. And uh, this government, previous governments, and I have to say I suspect probably the next government is showing no real sign of wanting to adopt that as, as a policy. Um, so I think that it's not that these things aren't being thought about or discussed, but there is a lack of um, energy in trying to deliver some of the population level solutions, which I think a growing body of people think warrant um, more effort, more application. It, it, you know, wh why aren't we doing more? There's a million reasons for that. One is, you know, the nature of evidence. It's much easier to collect evidence on the kinds of things I showed you, individual level interventions. Much, much easier to do that than it is to do studies which really show that intervening in markets uh, changes, changes consumption. And if you have a culture which demands a very high standard of evidence before you introduce new policies, that becomes a barrier to progress. There's also big issues over public acceptability. It's intriguing that even though most people are overweight in Britain, there is still an incredibly low public tolerance. 
People think, I characterize, those fat people over there should just pull themselves together um, and eat less. And there is an outra outrageous, outrageous lack of understanding and support for people who are struggling to control their food intake. And the public are, are quite skeptical about the sorts of things they want, you know, the kinds of interventions they want government to make. Um, or indeed they want the food industry to make. Recently some companies have, have reduced portion size of some of our kind of iconic brands. There's been a not insignificant consumer backlash of people feeling that they're being ripped off because their chocolate bar is now 5% smaller than it was last year. So I think there's a whole plethora of reasons why these things are not happening, some of which is about political will, some of it is about public acceptability, and some of it's about lack of evidence. Thank you. Okay, we have one here. My name's Godfrey Fowler. Uh, I was a GP in Oxford for about 40 years, and I was also involved in setting up the University Department of General Practice. Uh, smoking and diet interested me enormously as a GP in the last half of the second century, last century. And um, I was fascinated by the way the two changed over the period of 40 years or so. Of course, evidence on smoking was non-existent in about 1950. We all smoked, I smoked, we all smoked. We offered cigarettes around to our friends. I remember doing that as an undergraduate. If you didn't have cigarettes, it was because you were too mean or all the rest of it. That's changed dramatically now. Why has it changed? Well, largely, I think, because very good evidence was provided of the harmfulness of smoking, Richard Dole and others, which really uh, was very persuasive. The government had a committee in the, night, the last uh, half of the last century called the Tobacco, uh, Scientific Committee on Tobacco and Health, which I was on not because I was an expert, but because it was full of experts and they needed a GP to make sure that what came out of it would be understandable by GPs and so on. Anyway, that committee was very influential <coughs> and as a result, of course, all sorts of things happened, banning of tobacco advertising, all sorts of things. And it's been very impressive and we look around now and see what a different world it is. Now that, sadly, has not happened in relation to diet. I was actually on the government's committee on diet and health question. In, uh, in the 1970s and 80s, I think it was, the coma, so-called coma committee, a very good name for a committee, I'm sure, because we spent a lot of time sleeping. Um, but we did have lots of experts on that who all argued with each other about what was important at all. And the chief medical officer who chaired that was not really persuaded by anybody that you anything was to be done. So there we are. Okay. Do you have any comments? I think, I, I mean, I think there are some lessons from smoking, and I think we're trying to learn those, but um, it's, diet is much more complicated. You know, the message don't smoke covers most eventualities, and there isn't a don't eat message which works in quite the same way. And so I think complexity of message and the huge, the, the huge potential for compensatory behaviors, if you tackle one bit of the diet, you know, you might deal with that, but all sorts of other problems pop out somewhere else. That's even when you're just thinking about health, never mind when you start extending it to think about environmental issues. That's not meant as an apology for the lack of progress, but I think it is a little bit of an explanation as to why it is proving much, much harder than it is with tobacco. But, I mean, it is possible to change diets. So if, you, if you look back over the last 20 years, you can see that um, they have changed significantly in terms of things like uh, 
the difference between way, the way we use butter and, and, and animal fats and vegetable fats and so forth. And so it is, dietary change is possible. I think we have to be a bit more optimistic than perhaps I was to think that it is possible. But I, I agree with Susan what she said earlier. I don't think it's just a matter of evidence. It's actually a matter of things like political acceptability. So, for example, this government could make um, introduce things like taxes on sugary drinks if they wanted to. And indeed, 50% of the population are in favour of sugary drinks taxes. The problem comes in things like the sugary drinks industry are extremely powerful and fund all the political parties. So um, I think there are uh, powers that be which make it harder to change, perhaps to change diet in the way that we want to change them. Admittedly, the tobacco industry was um, powerful, but I think the food industry may be even more powerful. We have a question for the gentleman with the glasses, and not Charles, <laughs> and then Charles. My, my question is, why is Italy different? In the graph of showing the rise in obesity in different countries, with America far ahead, and Korea at the bottom, but Korea was increasing, America was increasing, every country was increasing except Italy. Now, I go to Italy a lot, and they really love food. So why is Italy bucking the trend, and what can we learn from it? Um, well, we have two questions. I, I, is a, a data problem here, maybe. Is a, um, because also these, if you see the graphs go up and down a bit, so I'm not entirely sure the recent trends in Italy. I mean, it's true that some countries like um, Italy and France have at times experienced a flattening of the curve. Is that, would that be your view? So I think there is, um, obviously, these rates cannot go up forever. They must tail off at some point, possibly at the American level or whatever like that. And you can see the American level is also tailing off to some degree. So there will be a point which we can't get any fatter, surely. There will be, but we're not at that point yet, um, uh, unfortunately. Um, and I, I, think, I think it's very likely to be a data issue. I wouldn't over-interpret that. If we look at the data from childhood obesity in Italy, which is perhaps measured a little bit better, they have amongst some of the fattest children in Europe. So even if there isn't a problem in the adults now, there's certainly going to be. But there is also, I think, a difference in food cultures, I try to allude, between France and, and some, some of the other developed countries like Australia and the United States. I think there is good evidence that, you know, French rates are not going up as fast. And that's largely because they do retain lots of the old-fashioned food, food ideas, like eating together and cooking. Um, you know that if you go to France, really. And I think that's a, a big contributor to the uh, slow, slower rates of the increase of, of obesity in France and Italy and places like that. Charles. A question for Susan about the relationship between mortality and, and uh, BMI. Uh, I think there's some statistical work, I think, coming out of Canada that argues that although obesity definitely elevates mortality, that there might even be a slight advantage of having a BMI a little over 25. Yep. Am I just clutching at no, straws, or do you...? Well, uh, if you look at it in, in mortality terms, that's absolutely right. Um, but that is a very simple outcome, actually. I think there are two things underneath that which we should be concerned about. The first is that we are offsetting the premature mortality in people who are overweight with huge medical intervention. So uh, treatment for high blood pressure, dyslipidemia, and, and so forth. So preventing that mortality which one might expect to accompany overweight is being achieved at huge medical cost. That's the first thing. And the second thing is it, that only takes account of things that kill people. 
And actually, some of the biggest burdens of obesity are things like um, joint problems, back pain, and so forth. Certainly big things that account for lost economic productivity. And without doubt, those are much more directly related to increases in, in weight. So I think that if we only look at mortality, we are deluding ourselves about the scale of the problem. Obesity actually, you know, the impacts on mortality are actually rather less than you might expect them to be, but it's the impacts on ill health, morbidity, that are huge. It can be if you have a very strong and well-funded medical healthcare system. Um, but the question is, do you want to medicalise your way out of this problem? I think it's a sticking plaster. Oh, okay, wonderful. Um, this is a question about environmental sustainability of food, and I was wondering what recommendations you have on the individual level, collective group level, and government level for addressing some of the, I, I guess, food sustainable, sustainability issues that you brought up um, in a way that's easily accomplishable to show like small success steps for to lead to larger reform. Stan Satara. Right, so with... Um, with Mike's typology, individual level, I think I've, I've kind of highlighted the sort of eat more plants, eat less meat, don't throw food away and don't get fat. I mean, that's the individual level. Um, the, I suppose, group level is to look at pricing mechanisms and look at the regulatory environment, all the things that both Susan and Mike have been talking about um, in terms of uh, school meal standards, do they incorporate any sustainability criteria? No, they don't. Um, what about, you know, comments already been made about the price of meat relative to the price of vegetables. Um, that's not included. Um, we've had some efforts at carbon footprinting, which have been, you know, there's you know, bags of crisps with, you know, this, this produced 75 grams of CO2. Well, so what? What does that mean? Um, so the consumer labelling approach is, is useful and it can be useful because if Walkers and, I don't know, Doritos both produce a bag of crisps and the, the 35 gram packet of Walkers crisps has lower footprint than Doritos, then you can have a kind of positive race to the top or the bottom or whichever way around it is um, from the manufacturers and I think that's also the case with front of pack nutritional labelling. So there's there's things that need to be explored with respect to pricing mechanisms and regulatory environment and working with the food industry. The evidence base on what actually works doesn't exist because, um, because the environment is simply not a priority and because for all the reasons that Susan has, has been discussing, the fact that, that the idea of intervening in people's diets is... is um, is anathema to policymakers for, for the sake of health, let alone the environment, which is still a problem out there that's, you know, the next government's problem. So, um, I, you know, we can say what we want to do at the individual level and at the societal level, I'd say we need not just research, but action so we can learn from our mistakes and that will feed the evidence base so we can get it right next time because we can't afford to do nothing. Um, yeah, and from an anthropological sort of societal group, subjective, narrative, <laughs> historical, whatever perspective, we perhaps need to look at um, how we value stuff, how we define progress, um, our relationship with meat as like, 
kind of synonymous with plenty and bounty and good things and how we can maybe construct a different narrative about what good actually looks like. Yeah, I, I agree with Tara. And all, I think we can learn a lot here from tobacco. We, we could have taxes on, on meat. We could have um, bans on the advertising of meat-based products. We could have um, better labelling of meat-based products to demonstrate that they um, have a high embedded greenhouse gas emissions, all those sorts of things. Um, I suppose in my talk, I was also saying, I think um, I'm not optimistic about any of those things. We can't even get a tax on sugary drinks, which I think, for which the evidence is pretty clear, which would have um, benefits on obesity at least. Um, I'm not optimistic, really, uh, today, and at least. Um, and I think what we need is a fundamental change of mindset. That was what I was trying to get at in talking about um, the left-hand side of my diagram. We really need to alter the way we think about um, consumption as a a phenomenon in society. We do define ourselves by, as consumers, or we all define ourselves more by our consumption than by our, 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 our jobs, for example. And so we do need... Something big needs to happen in order to actually make a difference here. I think there is a really important issue around social norms um, and, and the, you know, the, the way we view food as part of our culture. And again, harking, harking back to tobacco, a really important shift was in public opinion and social norms, where it went from the days where you did you know, freely hand out cigarettes to friends to, to when it's just socially not acceptable to do that anymore. You know, I would make the analogy with, with sort of biscuits in meetings. You know, even in nutrition meetings, I still go to things where if there are no biscuits, people complain. Um, you know, and, and actually, I think that you know, I will very happily have a biscuit with my, with my coffee. On the other hand, if it wasn't there, I wouldn't go off in search of one. And, you know, it's an example of how the environment prompts your behavior. And it's an example of how social norms are framing the way we um, treat food. But on the subject of biscuits, it's so core to our sense of hospitality yeah. that you never invite somebody into your house without offering them something to eat and to drink. And that's been going back since, you know, read the Odyssey. They're always, you know, food is essential. So the offering of food, you know, maybe we should be looking at offering other sorts of food, but that is, that is very yeah. core. Yes. Um, th there's a gentleman here. Hi, I'm just tapping into that social norms point. Um, as social norms, psychology and lifestyle all are obviously important components, I just wonder if the panel think one of the three daily meals is more responsible for obesity than another. So breakfast, lunch or dinner, because they may illuminate factors of psychology and lifestyle, that's all. So the answers are all equally important. Uh, I don't worry, especially when people consume their calories. I think what matters is the, is the integrated some. Well, actually, I do think it matters very much um, that people sit down and eat with one another. And I think there's a, we should stop snacking, basically. I think there's a moral imperative. I think we, it's morally iniquitous to snack, actually, though I do it all the time, of course. Um, we should eat with one another. And that would regulate our, our calories to some degree. And also, we would be um, eating proper food from uh, fresh ingredients and cooking it ourselves rather than buying junk food. Cabbage, mainly. Yeah. Cabbage, mainly. <laughs> Ma ca mainly cabbage, yeah. We, we had a question here. Um, I, I speak as a meat producer. 
<laughs> so I don't like the sound of taxes on meat and that sort of thing. Um, but my first point is, I, I think this whole um, obesity issue is much affected by what we do, how much energy that we eat, we actually use. And I'm very conscious that even in modern agriculture, the energy provided is mostly comes out of an oil well, and people don't actually physically exert themselves. And uh, people spend lots of money and time in the gym, wasting energy, it seems to me. So the question of how we actually live, whether we spend most of our time sitting on our backsides looking at screens, or whether we're out there uh, farming with sides and things like that. Um, but I, I'd also uh, like to uh, ask Tara whether um, there's, uh, whether the economic influence of what makes farmers, food producers, do what they do. Um, I mean, on our farm, we, we try to put very high up the sort of ecological impact of the farming system. So although we produce beef and, and sheep meat, it's all grass-based and it is not at all fed with cereals. Uh, but nevertheless, there is a whole lot of uh, uh, methane emissions involved in that sort of thing, which we always feel, oh, it's not can't really be like that. You know, it can't really be that big a problem. The, the methane produced by, by cattle—they've uh, always roamed on grasslands. They've always been huge herds of herbivores um, eating and belching. And uh, uh, is it really that big a problem? Because we're really, really concerned about that. Uh, equally, how this food is processed and distributed. We also, we also produce vegetables which are distributed in Oxford by rickshaw, um, <laughs> which doesn't uh, produce too many emissions, I, I hope. Um, but the whole process of how farmers are rewarded, we're actually driven by economics. We're driven by how we make a living. You know? uh, we can't do things which we think are ecologically sound or good for health or anything else if we don't make a living by doing it, if the economics doesn't permit us to do that. So, so we need big incentives to do what are perceived to be really the most sensible things. Well, I mean, I think, I think you, several things come up. First is the whole issue of grass-fed and emissions, and then the second is the incentives. And I think, I think both of them link to ideas about what we actually want. So there's been lots of work looking at life cycle analysis recently, and generally it finds that livestock that are reared more intensively on cereals or that are monogastric, pigs and poultry have a lower carbon footprint than your grass-fed beef that look natural, they look like they should be there anyway, they're making use of resources, etc. So there are two ways of looking at that, of, of answering that question. One is to say, okay, well, we can't do anything about our de desire for meat. Demand is going to grow. If it's inevitable, then what we really need to do is to be giving incentives to farmers to make more efficient their supply chains, to... Um, produce more with less impact, which might mean um, going down the soy and the confined systems route and the anaerobic digestion route. Another way of looking at it is to say, well, hang on a minute, what are animals really good at? Well, they're portable dustbins, they're recyclers of waste, and um, what if we limit, we say we actually can do something about consumption, it's not an act of God, our desire for me, and we can actually... Um, set a limit on our consumption and see what level of meat we can get out of uh, rearing livestock on land, on suited to other purposes and off byproducts and so forth. Um, the, the, and then you might get a different set of incentives and disincentives, but what you're going to get is a very, very seriously constrained amount of meat availability per capita. So I think there was the study recently that came up with about 30% of the world's meat worldwide is grown on this sort of ecological leftovers. So, so if that were the case, 
then the cost of meat would go up very, very substantially and farmers would be remunerated. Now, the danger there lies in the fact that if the cost of meat goes up, then who gets to eat it, who gets to afford it? It's, it's really not going to be poor, poor babies in sub-Saharan Africa. It's going to be wealthy people living in Oxford. That's the first thing. And then the second thing is, is that um, to what extent would a very high food price lead to illegal land clearances to produce more of that grass-fed beef that we all want. Now, I don't know the answers to any of that, and I know where my gut feelings lie, and they, they don't lie with the intensive pig and poultry production, but, but I think that's part of the point that I was really trying to make, is that we have to discuss as a society what our metrics are and link to, underpinning what our metrics are, what we actually want to achieve as a society. Thank you. There's a one lady at the back here. Thanks. Uh, thanks so much for the talk. I've gone to a number of talks like this recently, and it seems to me that the environmental people are very willing to say we should eat less meat, but the nutrition people always say we should consume less saturated fats. Now, uh, of course, most of our saturated fats come from meat consumption, and I'm just curious why uh, sort of the, the nutrition group seems less willing to put forth this message of we should just eat less meat. And that also goes for sort of nutritional advice from various Western governments, which also seem to be eat less saturated fat, not eat less meat, which to me seems like a much clearer sort of equivalent to smoke less or don't smoke. Um, well, this nutritionist has no qualms in saying eat less meat. Um, uh, I think it, it, it's a sort of, it, it's somewhat philosophical. Nutrition science is grounded in a discussion of nutrients and the metabolic impact of nutrients. So it tends to look at the impact of saturated fat or, or sugar rather than foods. Um, so I think it's a question of, of what you're trying to do. If you're trying to look at the metabolic impact, or you're trying to communicate the message. Um, meat is an important source of saturated fat. It's by no means the only one. Um, you know, I worry at least as much, possibly even more, about saturated fat that we have in biscuits and cakes and pastries and this sort of thing. Um, and certainly, you know, not all meat is equal when, one come, when one's thinking about saturated, uh, saturated fat. So I don't think the two messages are discordant, but I totally accept that we are not communicating well to consumers about food, and that is partly because of different discourses that are, that are going on. I find myself increasingly trying to move away from talking about eating less saturated fat and eating less sugar, and instead saying, eat less biscuits, cakes, chocolate, confectionery, and sugary drinks. That covers a multitude of issues. It cuts calories, fat, sugar, and salt in one foul swoop. Easy to say, very, very hard to do because of the whole issues we've already addressed about, about the challenge of dietary change. Um, I, I would say that there isn't quite so much evidence on the, the health effects of meat as compared with the environmental impacts. I think the in environmental impacts are really very clear. The health impacts are getting stronger but less. But what we certainly need is integrated messages. So for example, um, I have a beef now uh, currently with Public Health England because they're proposing to re reproduce um, their dietary guidance for the UK called the Eat Well Plate. But they're refusing to take into account any of the environmental considerations of what we eat. So it will be based entirely on, um, on health um, evidence and not on environmental evidence, and that seems to me 
entirely crazy. Um, if it's true uh, that we keep referring back to the diet under rationing in the UK in the Second World War and uh, that uh, people were perhaps better nutritionally fed then, uh, is there anything we can learn or do short of having another world war? Although I can see the problems obviously when people would accept rationing and being told or restricted, but now from what you've said of what governments are reluctant to do uh, to restrict things. Well, I think what, what the rationing experience shows you is the two points we, we touched on earlier, which is that it was a time when there was a political will to do something, which was driven by, you know, uh, additional additional constraints in the system and where the public were prepared to accept pretty draconian um, intervention in a way which um, actually does feel very very hard to get either of those traction on either of those issues now um, not only uh, you know the, the world was a very different place then people were much more physically active which was which was clearly important um, but for sure during that era people were better fed than they had been previously and importantly we saw a narrowing of health inequalities um, it, there was a you know a, some some achievements not ho wholly but some achievements in terms of of equity um, but uh, you know you looked you know people often cite cuba as another example of where you know you get dr uh, really dramatic government intervention has huge powerful impacts on on consumption patterns but it's creating a climate in which that intervention is 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 possible i mean government does inter intervene in um food the food supply at times i mean famously under barbara castle for example in the labor government of the nine around the 60s or whatever um they they propped up the price of, of various commodities so sometimes governments can and do operate uh in the food market i mean scandinavian governments actually do quite a lot to um to alter the price of foods and, and so forth. So, I mean, it is possible for governments to actually interfere in the, in, in the market system for, for foods. And it's a prime, prime candidate. I, don't, I wouldn't interfere in the market for, for luxury goods, but when it comes to staples and such an important commodity as food, I think there's a good case for um, government interference in the market. Uh, it's also worth pointing out that people absolutely hated it. And after <laughs> rationing was over, the incidence of dental caries shot up because people could eat sweets again. And that goes back to the point that we have to remember that people don't eat for nutritional reasons or for the environment. They eat because they enjoy it. And then we have to try and figure out how to do it in a way that is not really dreary and really boring because it's not going to work. The last question just yeah. hi um i wondered what role you think that retailers can and should be playing in changing consumer behavior and um, they're obviously in the kind of the middleman in in our what we choose to buy and how we buy it um through their sourcing methods um you know, dealing with the farmers on a day-to-day -day basis and dealing with the consumers as well. So how, what role do you think that they should be playing? And have you got any examples of what retailers, what best practices retailers are doing and what good looks like? 
I'll start by saying I think retailers are the most powerful um, element in the food chain, um, for sure. Uh, and therefore, they do have a huge responsibility for how the food system operates um, in both um, you know, health, health and the environment. Um, the challenge for them is that they are trying to marry up those societal goals with their commercial goals. And um, what they would like is for those two to be aligned, and they're currently not. So um, that, that's where the tensions arise. So there's all sorts of limited examples of retailers trying to do the right thing. There's probably a couple of examples of reasonably good practice, but it is not yet widespread, nor is it, if you like, in their DNA, that their business is about selling healthy, sustainable food. That, that's not at the heart of their ethos. Um, and I think it's going to be a good while before we get there. Um. Um, so the retailers are all doing stuff on um, sustainable sourcing, so palm oil, um, fish, et cetera, et cetera. So they're doing some good work there. And they are also, they usually have health, healthy strands. What they don't do, even though they know that it's part of the discussion that needs to be had is to try and integrate environmental sustainability on the one hand with health on the other and to focus also on the meat issue. So they're very familiar with the issues, but they are too scared to do something about it. What I would really like to see um, is um, basket of goods reporting. I'd like to see the typical basket of goods purchased in Asda, Tesco, Sainsbury's, wherever it might be, to uh, with year on year or every couple of year reporting of the health and the environmental profile using a particular metric such as water and greenhouse gas emissions, maybe land use, for the, a typical basket of goods so that we can actually compare how progress is being made year on year. I, I, that would be a nice thing to do. Right. Do you have any comments on that? Um, no. no. Okay. <laughs> so thank you very much. Before we close, I just want to uh, let you know about some events that we have coming up. Um, as I mentioned at the beginning, this is the fourth in our um, series um, of health in the 21st century. So at 3.30 in this room next Thursday, um, we will have a talk on new strategies for disease prevention and management from infancy to old age, and that's on NCDs. Um, the following Thursday on eradicating hepatitis C and HIV, progress and challenges for the next 10 years. Following that, we have why do we need to reconstruct drug discovery? And on the last um, Thursday of term, 4th of December, we have strategies for vaccines for the 21st century. Um, away from the health um, field, uh, the Oxford Martin School hosts a, a wide range of events. Um, on Monday, um, again in this room at uh, 5 o'clock, we have the, um, the Butterfly Defect, which is a book um, by Professor Ian Golden, the director of the school, and he'll be talking on how globalization creates systemic risks and what to do about it. Uh, on the 18th of November, a panel discussion um, on demography, is the planet full? And then perhaps the most intractable of all the problems we'll be tackling uh, on the 19th of November, restoring trust in the financial system. So um, perhaps we could just conclude with one last thank you for our speakers. Thank you.